This is Bruce McDonald, and welcome to Academics of PA. This week I have Pam Hurd and Don Winahan, both from Georgetown University with me. So first, I want to thank you both for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having us, Bruce. Yeah, thanks for having us. Both of the two of you were the names that have come up the most often in terms of people that our audience actually wanted to see on the podcast. So I'm excited about actually being able to have you. Great. Thank you. Um, I will start off, you are probably an anomaly within academia, and if I'm wrong in this, I apologize, but I just want to kind of double check. The two of you are married or at least in a relationship, correct? <laughs> we are married. Yeah. Okay. And we, and we are also in a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Both of those things at the same time. That's always good. Well, the reason I ask is it is fairly... It's not uncommon to be in an academic relationship, but it is probably a little bit more uncommon to be in one where actually doing projects like working on a book together with somebody. So what yeah. I wanted to do. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> um, no, please go. Well, so there there are other examples. I think um, I would just sort of clarify that uh, what, you know what, I'm just going to stop. Why don't you just ask the question? <laughs> So what I was going to say, or ask, now i got to think of how I was going to ask it. I guess kind of uh, one, kind of what's the backstory there of the two of you? Know, how did, I know you both met when you were at Syracuse, at least it's my uh, assumption. Uh, so, you know, kind of how did the two of you both get into the fields that you got in? Where did, or how did that relationship between the two of you kind of emerge? And then what's it actually like working with, your partner in the context of an academic setting? I know uh, it's a hefty question all at once, but... <laughs> so we were PhD students at Syracuse at the same time, and I was in the public administration program. Pam was in sociology, but we took some overlapping classes. So I think we met in a qualitative methods class that Jody Sandford had organized. So yay for qualitative methods. <laughs> and, and then, uh, I think go ahead no go ahead well initially we didn't have that much in common in terms of our research and so we sort of did parallel areas of research and it wasn't until I think we'd probably been married for seven or eight years so maybe ten years after we met we found some connections between our two areas of research. And so we started to work together at that point. Yeah. I mean, basically I had been more direct policy oriented. So I did a lot of work around social security, Medicare, social welfare policy with a central kind of driving interest and in how uh, policy affects inequality. Um, and I also do a lot of health research um, and aging research, also all kind of focused around the themes of inequality. And then we just happened to be having a conversation about um, the kinds of barriers people face when they're trying to access social welfare policies. And that was sort of the start of um, where we realized we kind of had overlap yeah, in some ways, you know, there's always this discussion between policy people and people who study administration about how do you 
work together to think about the connection between implementation. And that's often discussed at some superficial level, and then there isn't a deeper follow-up conversation. But when you're married to someone, you can have those long-term conversations where you're iterating about the topic over a number of years. Uh, and so we, we, you know, we had the chance to do that. Um, and so the, it, it, I think it's partly nice to have someone who understands the areas of research that you work in and to talk about those things together and then very gradually see ways in which they actually connect. That kind of makes sense. I think about my experience with different relationships I've had over the years. One of the problems that usually emerges is a lack of understanding of really what I do. And most people just chop it up to say that I'm an economist. I'm like, well, I'm not really an economist. So definitely having someone that's around you that you can have that understanding and explanation with is a plus. Yeah. And I also think being married, I mean, there are other examples of married couples with um, overlapping research interests and not that I'm comparing Don and I, but for example, the recent econ Nobel laureates are married to each other Mm -hmm. um, and their research agenda has paralleled each other, I guess, over time. But I think generally most people with long-term collaborations are friends. Um, I certainly have a bunch of friends that I collaborate closely with. Um, And in some ways, I don't think it's all that different um, in terms of what uh, the interaction is like when you're working together. It's it's just a bit like working with a close friend. Now, do you end up with kind of instances or opportunities where you vehemently disagree? And when it's a friend, you can call them back later. You can spend a little time working on a different project. But when it's your partner, you don't really have that same escape. We definitely disagree on things, and I think we've probably figured out our comparative strengths over time, and so in some cases, we'll just defer to the other person, but there will be you know, issues like, how do you frame this problem, or how do we talk about this theory where we'll disagree, and you know, I, th- I think it has pluses and minuses, because you're not going to censor yourself in the same way you might do with someone that is a friend or a colleague. You're just going to sort of be straightforward about what you think is wrong with the other person. Um, But I I think the the key thing is, you know, we understand that these are disagreements about work that don't then fall into sort of um, how we treat each other as as partners in, in a marriage. And there haven't been, a, it's not like we've had a ton of, uh, like, disagreements. Um, in some ways, it really is like collaborating with someone. I mean, the way that I've increasingly thought about it is it's this sort of interdisciplinary collaboration. And so I'll defer to him when it comes to things that are really more central, like framing for a PA article, for example. I'm going to defer to him on that. That's like his area. But when it verges into, you know, sort of uh, sort of um, inequality or where the audience might be more uh, policy oriented, then I, you know, I, I have a sense that I have a better uh, ability to kind of 
frame something around that. So I, I, it's, it feels more like my interdisciplinary collaborations generally. All of my work is with people from different disciplines. Um, and so I'm, it feels that way to me, basically. I, you know, I think disagreements, this is probably generally true with other sorts of collaborations, tend to come up in areas which are really sort of new or not well mapped out. Right. And so when we started writing the book on administrative burdens, the areas where we disagreed tended to be on issues like how do we how do we talk about the theory? Right. Because that was novel terrain, whereas, you know, if Pam is writing uh, a chapter on Social Security, she just knows that much better than I do. Um, but you know, the flip side of those disagreements is that it's absolutely essential to have that dialogue and sometimes that that disagreement in order to further each one of you for whatever your prior beliefs were to, to think about things more creatively. Um, and so that, you know, that is part of the process. It really works. I mean, and generally this is true in my mind with interdisciplinary collaborations. I mean, one real advantage to it is precisely that you see the weaknesses in the argument. Like when you're, when, you know, when you're, when you're used to thinking about things in a particular, from a, particular disciplinary vantage point to get challenged by someone who doesn't think about the same thing that way is actually really useful because it, you identify weaknesses and flaws in, in your thinking. So I, I generally have found the work gets stronger when you do that because in part, because you get this different vantage point, uh, sometimes on the same substantive area, but having that push about why you think a certain way about it really helps to um, target your argument better. You both certainly have your own independent research agendas. When you're thinking about starting a new project, whether it's together or whether it's going to be something that is independent, how do you go about choosing the subject is or even if you're taking on a co-author, how would you kind of approach thinking about what co-authors you're going to work with? So, so we have a couple of sort of projects where we've worked together. One has been, and this is probably less well known to a public administration audience, but we've also done papers on voting and uh, the relationship between health and voting. Um, and that partly grew organically out of a time when I was working with some political scientists in Wisconsin, Pam was running uh, uh, something called the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study, which is still the PI of, and I knew that they had voting data in that data set that we could work on together. And so there was sort of a matter of, you know, I had a question with some colleagues, I thought we could answer that question much better by collaborating with Pam. And it, it was sort of a very organic um, relationship that, that flowed from there. Um, you know, I think with the administrative burden stuff, and, and Pam can comment on this, that, that was much more uh, built out of our life experiences and reflecting on those experiences as we also talked about what we were doing research on. And so, you know, there, there were parts of that were, for example, for me being an immigrant and dealing with the paperwork uh, costs of, of uh, applying to become a citizen. Um, 
And, you know, we have a, we also have a, a child who has a disability. And so that in itself generates a lot of administrative burdens when you're trying to get support from government. Um, and so we, we have many conversations that were really part of a, a reflection of life that we were living and how we thought our research could speak to or, or really didn't speak to those experiences. Um, and so those those were sort of two quite different paths. I think the first path could have happened with any other colleague on campus, whereas the second path probably did depend much more on uh, our personal experiences overlapping with our professional expertise and having conversations about those in a way that I don't know would have happened with just some other colleague. Yeah, I mean, the voting thing was sort of interesting we had added um actually i think we'd done that with barry though is the thing we, that we'd added voting data to this sort of 60 year long longitudinal study um and yeah somewhere in the process there we all started talking about different things to do with the data um it's hard to honestly with a lot of projects where the there's um they just sort of a um a merge or something you know you're like chatting with people especially at a place like Wisconsin we just the breadth of the social sciences there um and there's a lot of interaction among social scientists um like interdisciplinary interactions among social scientists at Wisconsin and so it's just super easy. I have so many projects where I look back and I, I actually really can't remember like, <laughs> <laughs> what conversation it was or what, you know, you could, um, anyway. Part of what I think is interesting is that you both kind of have these publication records that aren't strictly in one very kind of tight knit controlled area. And I think when we train PhD students this in this day and age, one of the things that departments like to do is say kind of stick to the area because that's what gets you known. So I think kind of hearing how you choose, you know, the process that you go through of thinking about what projects you're going to work on is kind of interesting. And I like, Pam, that you said that you really don't remember because there are so many things that just kind of happen to come along. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably the extreme version of the um, not sticking to one particular topic <laughs> um, or, or disciplinary. I, I mean, I am a, I'm a sociologist by training. I think the, the very consistent thread throughout all of my research is that it focuses around inequality. But beyond that, it's much broader, I think, than, than most of the people I know. And it's not, um, it's, it's partly a function of just, I'm interested in a lot of things um, and I'm pretty curious about a lot of things and I really enjoy the process of learning new areas. Like I really, I really enjoy that process of trying to like figure things out and I really like working with people. I like working with sociologists, but I really like working as well with people who are not sociologists. Um, and so all of the, those things I think, explain a little bit the diversity of the areas that I've worked in. And that, you know, what I will often say to, to students when I talk to them is that, you know, I, on the one hand, I would never recommend my approach to anyone because it can be difficult to pull something like that off. Um, 
just strategically because it's more time consuming, right? Like if you, if you, if you get to know one area really well, you, you both can publish more rapidly in that area as well as you get to know people much more quickly than who are the people who write your letters for tenure and all those sorts of things. Um, but that said, I, I would not trade what I've done for anything. To me, the, um, the major advantage to being uh, an academic at a university is that you get to decide every day what you're going to do with your time. You know, I mean, you have obviously some constraints, but more than any other job that I'm aware of, we really kind of, you know, you're the master of your own domain. And so I feel like if you give that up, if you start making a lot of choices, particularly about your research that are more strategic than they are driven by what you're interested in, you're kind of losing a, a major advantage to the jobs that we have, or you're giving up a major advantage to the jobs you have. Yeah, I think for, for listeners who are less familiar with Pam and might know her only for her work on administrative burdens, uh, she, she's definitely understating the sort of breadth of her expertise here. So her dissertation dealt with uh, Social Security, and she's also done work on sort of classic political science questions about voting questions of aging and health. So she's published in places like uh, The Gerontologist and more recently on sociogenomics. And so the, the interaction between people's um, uh, genetic backgrounds and the environment in which they operate. Um, and so I think she has an unusually large um, breadth of interests. Um, you know, for, for me, I think my breath is a little bit more modest in that it, it generally all falls into uh, public administration or at least the edges of political science. And so my PhD started with uh, performance management, and that's been one topic I've sort of worked on throughout. And interestingly, that wasn't the topic that I had set out to work on. I, you know, initially I was interested more in international development and human resource issues, but my, my PhD advisor wanted someone who would work on that topic for a project that she had um, um, funded. Um, and so I, I stuck with that. And I, I think it is generally good advice to students to think about, you know, what's your identity before you go up for tenure. It's easy for people who are writing your letters if you have one or two clearly defined areas um, that you've really exploited pretty well and you become known for that topic. On the other hand, uh, you know, it can take five years between when you start initiating that research question and seeing it come out in a published volume somewhere, right? And so one of the things that sustains you and keeps you interested in that topic over time is that you just care inherently about the topic. And so what motivated me to do different things like to start studying elections and ultimately voting um, or, or take a sideline to do disaster response were, were things that I found interesting in real life. So I, I started studying elections after the 2000 election in the Florida recount. That sort of became more interesting to me. I started becoming interested in disaster response after Hurricane Katrina. And, 
you know, the administrative burden topics, as I mentioned, sort of flow directly from some personal life experiences. Um, and so, so one, one of the beauties of academia is that you have the freedom to pursue these other interests, but it's all, it's also a motivating factor that you're actually interested in these topics, right? And at some point, I think I got a little bit burned out after I published um, my, my book on performance management in about 2008. I was really looking for other things to do. Um, so it, 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 it is actually help, healthy, I think, in the long run to have a couple of slightly different topics that you're interested in because if you start to feel like you've in a rut with one, you can always devote more of your energy to another before you before you come back to the first. I'll throw myself under the bus a little bit because I think I kind of fall into the same category where I like having a breadth of different things that I'm working on and I get remarkably curious about a large number of different you know, things that kind of come along. For instance, I do predominantly budget and finance, but I have a friend that does a lot of PSM stuff. And so I have a selection of PSM papers, even though that seems a little weird to me. At the same time, though, I end up with kind of a massive list of ideas for different papers that I either try to manage or try to work on. But it's now long enough that realistically, if I accomplish that list, I could probably retire tomorrow because there's enough things on there that would you know, fill whatever expectation of publishing you could ever have for a career. My difficulties kind of go going forward and thinking about, well, I have all these different options of things to work on, which one do I actually want to focus on at this, at this moment? So I guess kind of my question is, given that you know, you're both kind of looking around and seeing what's kind of going on in society to kind of help drive what, some of what you focus on, how do you actually narrow down to the ones that you're going to focus on yeah, for me, at any given moment, I'm sort of more focused on one thing than the other. Do you know what I mean? So, for example, right, right now, um, I do have a few things, you know, a certain pot, a certain selection of things that are focused around the administrative burden theme. And particularly, just for example, I'm really interested about developing a clear kind of theoretical frame to think about race inequality in the administrative burden frame. And so I think that's, um, uh, so that's sort of part of where I'm really devoting my energy to there. I also, you know, do the sort of aging and inequality. And so I have a, a big um, NIH funded project around um inequality basically in dementia. So meaning like socioeconomic differences and who ends up with dementia in later life. And so I have some key papers that I'm working on um, as well as data collection that I'm working on with that. And, and so, so it's like, I have these sort of three areas where I'm doing work. And then within those three areas, I sort of focus on what I think are the most kind of important of the ideas or the most interesting of the ideas that I have, you know, on your, your list, right? Like what I would generally say though, is it's true. You're right. Like, I think it's taken me some time to figure out how to prioritize and how to think through both sort of practical um, and interest-based choices about what I'm prioritizing. But what I would 
for sure say is that you're in a much better position to have too long of a list than to be someone <laughs> who can't figure out what to do next. You know, I mean, I think on this in the scheme of things, right? Right. Yeah. So one of the pieces that stuck with me from grad school was uh, reading about organizational learning um, from James March and the distinction between devoting your energy between um, exploration and exploitation and the idea that certain amount of your time is spent investing in new topics, new areas that you develop some expertise in, and the payoff might take a little while to come, but eventually it comes. Eventually you get to the point where you can exploit that expertise and so the marginal cost of each additional paper becomes much lower. Um, and so I think, you know, it's sort of helpful if you're a PhD student or a junior faculty member to think about that, right? So some investments that you make should have these long-term payoffs, um, but you can't have a portfolio where it's entirely exploration and you're not exploiting some area of knowledge that, that you previously developed, right? Um, so, you know, I think at any given point in time, I'm probably thinking about how am I exploiting something that I already know something about, like the performance management stuff. Um, and and at some point, I'm also trying to think about w what's the next thing I need to spend more of my time thinking about. Um, right now, I think I'm spending more time on the administrative burden stuff, partly because it's very attractive to interact with other scholars who are excited about the topic. And so there's also a little bit of a demand function there when you sort of see people who are uh, interested in what you're doing and want to help build out that area of research, then it's uh, incredibly motivating. You, you know, you, you, you want to do everything you can to sort of help create a structure of research that people find helpful. Um, so part of this is also just, you know, not just what is exciting and interesting for the broader world, which is certainly a motivating factor, but also what your colleagues are receptive to and, you know, what aspects of your work do they really seem to respond to. Um, and, and I think that sort of draws you like a magnet to invest more time in that work if you're getting professional feedback that people find what you're doing helpful. I also think that when I look back, right, there's pre-tenure and post-tenure. And mm -hmm. so what I did pre-tenure was less diverse. I mean, it, you know, I had sort of policy inequality and health inequality, and there was actually quite a bit of overlap. So even, for example, my, I, you know, when, when there were figuring out who would write letters, there were like obvious people who kind of knew both parts of my work, say. Post-tenure, though, that's one of the things. You just have some more freedom to do that exploratory um, kind of work. And I actually think, for me at least, some of my more novel and interesting work has come post-tenure because I've had the time to invest in it and to take risks. So the, the thing that Don mentioned earlier, I have this piece coming out in the American Sociological Review, which is effectively showing how gender inequality um, kind of can alter things that we might think are largely influenced by genetics. So it's a paper about gender inequality and aging and so on and so forth. That paper from start to finish effectively took me about, um, 
don't know, eight years because there was data collection. <laughs> I did the data collection. There was grant writing to get the money to do the genetic analysis. And there's, the, you know, like it, it took forever, right? Um, but that's that's one of the great luxuries about tenure. You can, you can invest in that way and take those kind of risks. Um, and sometimes I think your best work can come out of that. Thinking of your typical paper about how long does it normally take for you to complete a paper from the time you come up with the idea to the time you actually finish it? Boy, that is a hard question. Um, <laughs> it is, yeah. well, How about I'll give you a second to think and I'll kind of give you the background as to why I ask. Um, I teach a course in research design, which is basically how you write the front half of a paper. And it's a class that all the first year PhD students in my department take. And we were sitting in class last week and they were very kind of demotivated a little bit that it's taking an entire semester to do just the front <laughs> half of a single paper. And I was trying to explain to them like, no, no, they can take a while. Yeah. So it, the, the answer is it depends and it's always longer than you think. Right. And, and so I, I can give you an example of the best case scenario where we just had a paper accepted in public administration review uh, with some co-authors oh, yeah. in, in Denmark, um, Martin Bakert, Julian Christiansen, and Lena Arrow. And, and basically, it's a theory paper. So we didn't have to go out and collect data. And it's about the relationship between human capital and administrative burden, and so it was also part of an existing framework that we built over the course of the last you know, 10 years. So the paper itself got written really quickly. Julian, in particular, was interested in this topic. Um, and once we pulled it together, it, it just made great sense. And I think we started talking about it uh, last Spring, so so the spring the of two thousand, yeah, two thousand nineteen, yeah, and it got accepted quickly, and so it should be out, you know, maybe later this year, the start of twenty twenty. That is by far the best case scenario, but it's also built upon lots and lots of prior intellectual work that we've done. Yeah, like that right? went into um, the book. You know what I mean? Like, so it's. It's a bit erroneous to sort of say, oh, yeah, the, you know, the publication was really quick. It's like built on. So it looks quick, but it wasn't. It wasn't, yeah. Right? I think, I think but, the variance is high, right? I mean, I think Don's right. Like it always takes longer than you expect. And the variance is huge. And in part a function of whether the area is new to you or whether you've been accruing a large body of work in there. Like, you know, the bigger the body of your work in an area, the quicker each subsequent paper goes on average. Um, but the variance is so large. And it also depends on your co-authors, like how many co like whether it's just you, whether you're working with multiple co-authors. Yeah, I think the important answer to that is... High levels of variance. Yeah. <laughs> and the, do you already have the data, right? Because I think if you're in the, in the, Pam referred to a paper where she had a research idea and she had to collect really complicated data to execute that idea. And that took years to do. Uh, even if you're doing a survey, 
Um, now, turnaround times and surveys, uh, if you're doing online surveys, have really collapsed so that you can collect data relatively quickly. Um, but that doesn't work for all projects. But, if, you know, you have to do an IRB process that can take months. You send out a survey. Maybe it takes months to get that information. Uh, it can take, you know, between one and two years between you initially submit something to a journal and when the paper is accepted and let's say it doesn't get accepted in the first journal or the second journal then you sort of keep adding uh, more and more time to the process so when everything works right uh it can you know things can work really quickly but it's more normal i think to think about any project you start as something you should still be willing to stick around for five years from now, um, which again is why it's really important that it's a topic you actually care about rather than something that you think, you know, this this will be an easy publication and then I'll move on to some other stuff. Okay. I'm trying to think through when, you know, thinking about papers I've worked on, what's the longest I've actually worked on one of them? And I think it was nine years. But that is definitely, I would hope, the exception rather than the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I had the first survey experiment I did, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I think I maybe collected data in 2007 or eight. It wasn't until 2015 <laughs> I got the paper published. So, you know, it's <laughs> it can take a while. I think that's it, though. Like, that's sort of an important lesson, which is, I mean, a lot of this is just about persistence. You know, it's about submitting that grant over and over and over again, uh, submitting the paper over and over and over again. I think getting used to um, just keeping at it is sort of the most important thing and also the hardest thing. <laughs> um, I think in terms of doing this kind of work. Yeah. So I think one thing that's true of really productive scholars is that they're efficient in their efforts, right? So if they write a paper, they don't let it go until it gets published. Um, and so that, uh, there are very few papers that I've written that I eventually just said, oh, this, I, I'm just going to give up on this. Um, but that means not letting the paper file fall into a file drawer and stay there forever. It means just figuring out what you need to do with it next to make it attractive to the next journal and shipping it out again. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's not easy work because it's dispersing to be told that your work is not good and doesn't meet the standards of a journal. And I think in particular, when you're younger and starting out, it's difficult to separate criticisms of your work and criticisms of, of you as a person. And so that's one thing that just gets easier over time is externalizing criticism um, so that you know, if you get a rejection, you just say, okay, I have to set some time aside and work on this again rather than you know, roll around on the floor crying as you know, <laughs> I would have done in, in the first couple of years. I definitely saw him do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, right. And, and also there are always these stories that people have, right, about the paper that got rejected at seven different places. And then it ends up somewhere and it ends up being one of their most cited papers. Like, 
um, this is one thing that's actually nice about Twitter is like, you see a lot of people talking about experiences like that. Um, I, I actually had a similar experience like that, this paper that, you know, we, we initially tried at a somewhat lower rank journal, got rejected. And then the, the person that I was collaborating with was like, well, let's just try it at this higher rank journal. And to me, it seemed, this was very early in my career. To me, that seemed, why would you do that? We did it. It got accepted. Like, and it got like a conditional accept on the first submission, which wow. is obviously one of the few I've ever had. <laughs> like that's <laughs> unusual, right? Um, so I, I think that's also, you also really also have to understand that there is a certain amount of randomness in the process. And sometimes, you know, people are going to be not quite right about the reviews or you're going to, the reviews are going to push you to think in a way that further clarifies um, what is actually a really good and interesting paper, but you just hadn't quite pitched it right. You know, I I think it's, yeah, that's part of it. It's funny that you kind of, well, I suppose not really funny, but since you mentioned Twitter, I think the two of you are probably the most active people that actually follow on Twitter and I can't fully kind of figure out how you managed to actually be successful at what you do while also still spending the time it takes to kind of do what you do on Twitter. So my kind of curiosity is how do you kind of pursue or how do you manage that work-life balance between everything else that you do career-wise with what you do at the house, with the public engagement that you also both do as well? So, uh, you know, this is a good question, and I think it's actually a question we should talk more about at conferences in the same way we talk about things like how to get a paper published, because part of what we encourage faculty to do now is to have a public profile where they can um, talk about their work. Mm -hmm. It's important to know with social media that that content and that platform is designed to be addictive, right? (laughs) There are designs in the software that you're consuming that compel you to keep checking and rechecking content uh, all the time. And so being on social media by itself is, is not in itself any great measure of success or virtue. It just means, uh, Oh, maybe you're just addicted to this thing that's designed to be addictive. And, you know, I, I certainly, would say I probably spend more time than I should on social media. With Twitter in particular, I think I've gotten better about certain things. So like I do not generally respond to people who reply to me. That That's sort of a, a generally a waste of time unless they're positive replies. And the, the thing I would say I think is really quite good about it is that it does offer you to think about not just a platform for your work where you say, hey, I just had this paper accepted in PAR, which I, I think is the default, right? People will sort of say, I'm at this conference today, or I had a paper accepted. And I think that's sort of a base level minimum, but it's also not terribly interesting to most people. Right. Right. Um, and so I think you have to explain to them why your work is interesting. Uh, and, and one thing I think Twitter has been really good for me in doing is to look for examples in the news of where administrative burdens is playing this really important role 
um, in, in policy outcomes, or in some cases where performance systems are misfiring badly, and then to frame that problem from a public administration perspective to an audience who maybe wouldn't always think about those topics and those terms. Um, and so I, I, I think it is quite nice in helping us to explain to the world, oh, hey, this is actually a public administration problem, and here's why you should think about it in, in those ways. And then finding people in different communities who are receptive to that idea. And they might be people from think tanks or from disciplinary departments um, or people from other countries that you're normally never going to interact with. Um, but at least helping to create some sort of virtual communities of people who are sort of interested in the same things that you are. Um, so, I, you know, I think the more energy I've invested in that part of being on, on Twitter, I think, has been quite productive. Uh, not everything I do on Twitter is productive by any means. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, Don is a bit more productive on on Twitter than myself. But I actually would sort of I would sort of say like I that's the part that I found useful professionally is I've definitely kind of interacted with different people than I would have otherwise, like even other academics. Um, it's been a good platform to get certain kinds of work out there, or get people paying attention to it. Um, so yeah, I've actually found it um, quite quite helpful. And I actually, I don't find it that hard not to like, if, I don't find it that hard to like turn it off. Like it doesn't, doesn't really bother me that much. Um, it's not like I'm like, Oh, feeling like I have to get on there or something. Um, so I think mostly actually at the end of it, I found it um, actually kind of useful professionally. I think there's definitely an aspect of, you know, most of us come from departments where there's only really you who focus in a certain area. So having this immediate engagement with other people at other institutions who are also interested in the same thing is yeah. helpful. Yeah. But I probably fall between the two of you in terms of I'm not fully addicted, but I also will have a hard time not checking it occasionally. And so if I'm on vacation or visiting family, I will delete the app from my phone specifically to keep me off of it. So I probably reinstall it a good two or three dozen times a year uh, whenever I come back home. That That's probably a good practice. Yeah, that is a good um, practice. Uh, one, one other thing I'd add about that is, you know, there are also some risks of being on social media, especially if you're in a public institution and you say something off color or you compare some political figure to a member of uh, the Third Reich and not that not know, that it, either one of us has ever done that but not that we would do that right <laughs> but um but i i know multiple colleagues who because of things they've said on social media or because of things where students have um sort of elevated what they thought was problematic practice on social media it's become really problematic for them um and you know, I think that people are generally quite cautious about what they say on social media, which, you know, there's some measure of self-censorship there. Uh, that is probably wise when you're at the pre-tenure stage and certainly when you're a PhD student on the market, because um, I don't know if people do this, but I, I can imagine hiring committees certainly looking at people's social media and maybe 
consciously or not responding to what they see on that rather than responding to the candidate's work. You know, the last thing, the last thing I'd say about sort of an advantage to Twitter that I've seen is, um, so I do tend and have ever since I was a grad student worked around a lot of economists. Um, and one of the really interesting things I think within kind of econ Twitter is the ways in which women in economics have organized themselves. Um, from my vantage point, it looks like a lot of it happening on Twitter in terms of pushing back against what's um, kind of a tough discipline for women, I think, in terms of uh, gender inequality issues in the discipline. And so I've seen a lot of really, really interesting organizing around that. Um, uh, so I think I think there are these pockets where it's actually been um, quite valuable uh, around some issues. Yeah, the, the community building part of it has been, I think, really great. And it gives you access and, to people that you didn't know existed or you didn't know had common interests with in a, in a way that I think it's, it's hard to imagine using virtually any other technology. I think the other, you asked a broader question too, though, about how you kind of balance, I mean, how you're balancing broadly right. work and family. And, um, you know, I think that's something, um, especially people in, in dual career couples really struggle with quite, quite a lot, right? Because, um, I mean, both Don and I work quite a bit, but we also have two kids and, um, I think there are a few things I'd say about that. So one thing is I think this notion that people put out there that they work all the time. I'm, you know, I'm working at midnight and I'm working all throughout the weekend. And um, I think that's a really, um, I think that's not a narrative that we should be pushing. And I would say for myself, that's something I explicitly try not to do. I, it certainly has happened. I mean, actually last night, <laughs> <laughs> I spent more time working than I typically would. So it's not like I, I never do it, but I, I make a point of trying not trying largely not to do that. Um, and that when I'm spending time with my kids, I'm spending time with my kids in the um, evenings, for example, or late afternoons and evenings and on the weekends. Um, I think one of the blessings of these jobs actually is the flexibility that we have embedded in them. And that has been just so profoundly helpful, I feel like, in terms of balancing kind of work and family. And sort of as a kind of uh, um, a kind of woman in academia, I'd also say as I've gotten more senior, I've gotten a lot more explicit about saying, you know, for example, oh, no, I can't give a, a, a I can't attend late afternoon seminars by and large, because they're, you know, we have responsibilities to our kids so like at, at Wisconsin for example all the stuff was held in the middle of the day all talks and meetings um and it was actually very explicit why that was being done it was to make it easier to kind of balance work and family um so I'm, I'm just a lot more sort of I don't conceal the fact that I'm not doing something because I don't um because of some kid related issue, I've gotten a lot more um, vocal about just saying that. <laughs> and it's partly something you can do, I think, when you have tenure and you're more senior. Um, 
So I think that's sort of, I think that's a really important example for more senior people to project to, to do. I think mm-hmm. most, both men and women should be saying those things more vocal, vocally and more frequently, um, because I think it improves the environment then for everyone. Um, and it doesn't mean you're less, pro- I mean, okay, there are periods where you will be less productive. Like if you just had a baby, you will be less productive for a little while. You right. know what I mean? like, that's <laughs> reality. But on average, um, especially a lot of the accommodations I'm thinking about in terms of like when you hold seminars or doing things like that, um, you know, a place like Wisconsin, for example, I, there are very few people who would say that's a place where people are unproductive in the social sciences, <laughs> but it's a place that very explicitly organized schedules and ways to accommodate families. Um, so it, it does not have to impede productivity. It just makes the environment much more inclusive. Um, and I think as a consequence, you know, really helps to reduce kind of gender inequalities around, um, around caregiving, around kids and things like that. I think one of the problems we do have is we don't really talk about work-life balance very much within the field. And so you have, instances where we kind of encourage you to publish your parish and you take that on and we kind of ingrain it in PhD students. And so they get off in their careers and they've kind of lost the individual self because everything has been about that work environment. Yeah, it's, um, it's a tricky topic. I mean, I remember reading an interview, I think it was with Adam Grant a couple of years ago. And he, so he's been phenomenally successful as a professor at, at a business school. And he was reflecting on you know, his success and partly, you know, he said, I, I just work a lot. Um, and, you know, he's fortunate to have a family lifestyle that, that allows him to do that. And so the, the, there are different types of messages you can send to junior faculty. And so I would always say you have to have outlets that are not tied to your professional career so that your, you know, your personal identity is not completely wrapped up in that. Um, At the same time, you know, those people who tend to be just phenomenally successful probably have, engage in some of those sacrifices or they have a situation in their life where they're they're able to devote themselves uh, dramatically to their professional life um and so uh, you know I, you want to sort of give accurate information to students um i i think the the sort of risk for them though is being if they see models of people who are working 60 or 70 hours a week um, in particular, earlier in their in their career, working a lot helps. But I I also think how you work matters a lot, right? And so right. If, you, if you're doing sixty hours a week, but you still haven't figured out how to write an abstract or or how to frame a theory, then it doesn't really matter uh, how much time you spend on the on the problem. Um, but it, you know, it's, it is a sort of tricky problem. And I, you know, I think you can probably tell from my response, I have some ambivalence about this idea of work-life balance because I I also work a lot and that's probably partly why I've been successful. And it's also come at some cost, right? Because I, I, uh, I used to read a lot 
of novels when I was younger, and I just don't do that anymore. If it's not a book on tape I can read uh, or listen to in my car, I I'll just will not listen to it. Whereas I think Pam is actually much better than I am at being able to switch off and you know, during the weekend not feel the compulsion to pull out her laptop and to read books and to find other avenues. Um, that's something I've probably struggled with a little bit. We are kind of running towards the end of our time. So I do have kind of one last question for the two of you to kind of think about and answer, which is if you were to be kind of thinking back on your career and giving advice based off of your experience in your career to a PhD student or junior faculty, what would that advice be? Uh, so I, I, I would say to read Michael Granvetter's work on the strength of weak ties one thing that as I look back, I, I think I figured out is that there's no real substitute for having personal connections. Um, and they, they don't have to be strong connections, but knowing people who work in the area that you work in or that you aspire to work with, building connections with them can have real long-term payoffs. And a lot of the consequential interactions I had in the field were partly just happenstance, right? So I remember being at one public management research conference and meeting Sanjay Pandey at an event that Jim Perry held at his house. And it was really from there that we started working together and we had very fruitful collaboration for, for a fairly long period of time. Um, at some other point, I was at uh, the PMRC in Syracuse and I sat down beside Simon Kelmer Anderson of Aarhus University. And it was really from that that I started to have this long-term relationship with scholars in Aarhus that has been you know, absolutely wonderful for me in the last few years. Um, and, and so both of those were initially quite weak ties and just resulted from the fact that I was at these conferences, happy to meet people, uh, willing to find out what other people were working on and see if there's an overlap between my interests. Um, and I think this also extends to the professional world as well. Um, so one of the things I did as a PhD student was to spend a couple of summers interning with the World Bank. And a lot of the professional connections I've made among the practitioner community stem from that period of time where I was in Washington, D.C., I got to meet people, share my work with them. And so when I graduated, they knew who I was um, and they were receptive to hearing what I was up to at, at that later point in time. Um, so those those networks of connections, I think, are fundamentally important. They're really important right at the start of your career. And I think just introducing yourself to people finding peers uh, who are at the same level and are interested in the same topics you are. So it's, it's not just senior scholars. I think that's a great way to sort of build networks, which become a form of capital that you can draw on throughout your career. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely good advice. Sort of it's, it's a somewhat related um, to what Don's saying, but I also think just finding really good collaborators um, that certainly has been incredibly important to me. Um, the sort of set of people that I really enjoy working with that I think um, have uh, 
made kind of the work better. And what I mean by that is um, there's a lot of papers that I have that I could have just done on my own. But I think for most projects or, or in, you know, in, in similar fashion, like maybe some of my collaborators on those papers could have just done on their own. But nearly all of the work that I have that's collaborative is clearly so much better because, uh, you know, there were there were at least a few people involved like that. It's not I think we have this sort of idea in academia that um, that it's, you know, it's like the sole authored papers are so important. And, and they are, you know, in a practical sense, um, particularly within some areas of the social sciences that people expect to see that. But I think the truth is the most pivotal and important work increasingly is not sole authored, it's co-authored. Right. Um, and that, that, that kind of, uh, so, so finding those people, and I think that's the trend basically going forward. Um, so I think basically finding those people that you work well with is really, really important um, in terms of thinking about the long term over your career. And I think the second thing is something that we already just sort of mentioned, which is about just sort of basic combination of persistence and being sure that you're really interested in what you're doing, like not taking on work because someone else thought it was a good idea or even because the field deems that's an important question or work. You really have to be interested in it it yourself, Um, in part because the only way you succeed is is just persistence is just really keep you know submitting the papers over and over again and submitting those grants over and over again so you you really have to care about what you're engaged in the research that you're engaged in because if you don't it's it's just impossible to sustain that level of persistence especially in the face of the kind of failure that we all regularly um get or have great well thank you both for joining us today thank you for having us Yeah, thank you. It was fun.